You've found the place where healthcare's foremost leaders, thinkers, doers all come to share, to inspire, and to build a better healthcare world, one idea at a time. This is Patient No Longer. Welcome in. I'm Ryan Donahue, thought leader, author, and strategic advisor with NRC Health and host of Patient No Longer, the podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what's making healthcare more human. I've got a heavyweight across from me and someone that I've really appreciated talking to throughout the years. I am joined by Brian Mills. Hey, Brian. Hey, Ryan. I think you got your expectations way too high. Well, hey, it's like consumers in healthcare, Brian. They have really high expectations. So you just got to meet that high bar. And I feel like we will. You're president and CEO of Community Health Network in Indiana. You've been in that role for almost 15 years, but you actually started with this organization way back in 1985 as a controller for Community Hospital North. And so you've seen so much change and so many great things in Indiana. Convene the Alliance for Healthier Indiana, also a board member of United Way and past board member of Indiana Hospital Association, a great organization. So I thank you for being there. And Brian, I want to jump right in. You know, you've worn this CEO role, this hat, and we've talked about the challenges of that. We just recently finally got a chance to see each other in person for the first time since 2019. What is it like being a CEO in this, as my co-author of Patient No Longer, Steve Clasco calls, kind of after COVID? And we're still feeling all kinds of effects, some which aren't related to infectious disease at all. What is it like being CEO in this world right now? Well, I think it's different in many ways, but I mean, we still provide care. The majority of the care we provide is in person. We do something virtually we didn't do before. The biggest difference right now is communicating with our team, that people want to know what's going on. And so my communications to my entire team happen far more frequently than they did. And those communications started during COVID because, you know, we had to have some voice of truth, which I hope that that's how people think of me. But when all of a sudden everything changed, I've always said, my job is to coach a team. Okay. You said I was a controller. I never thought I'd work in healthcare. It's a bizarre story. Came here. And next thing you know, somebody asked me to be the CEO, you know, years later. I really struggled on what do I do? And my mentor said, go coach your team, Brian. And those words have given me clarity for going on 39 years now. And the reason is, is that games change. You know, our strategy changed, the world changes, but I've got to be the coach of this team. Well, and you have such a great humility about it all. And that's something I've always appreciated about you over the years. I'm curious when we talk about communication, which any good coach would tell you, if you can't communicate with your team, you're not going to be a good coach. What was it like from the angle of those executives, even those board members who before COVID you were seeing face-to-face in some fashion and for many of them every day, what was it like going into COVID having to adjust? And then as a follow-up to that, have you gotten back to a sense of what I'll call normal communication patterns or are things still off? When we talk about COVID starting, I was one of the first people in our state to get COVID. So next thing you know, I'm in my basement and I've got to figure out what I'm doing. I would still say one of the best things that had happened to me was to get COVID early. 
I would have never raised my hand. It made it real. I knew what was going on. I engaged with our team and literally, you know, the succession plan, if I'm not here tomorrow, went in place and our chief physician executive took over and then he got COVID. This wasn't some drill or something we're reading about. I do think that that helped us as an organization to understand what's going on and be the source of truth. And we convened Saturday meetings with our board, not only for decisions, they were updates. I recall being in my basement. I won't tell the whole story, but two of my sons were there taking care of me. My wife was taking care of her parents in Florida. And our basement flooded at that point in time. So my kids could tell you the story that my one son's pretty touchy. He was doing all these videos that I'm recording from my basement. And if you could see all the hoses that nobody could <laughs> I to get the water out of the place. But it was just, we had a job to do. We just had to. We had to engage. We had to engage in all parts of what we do. And quite frankly, Ryan, we did not lose any members of our senior team. We were all still a team. We're a better team than we've ever been because, you know, literally we went through hell together. It's so interesting that image of you, you know, with these hoses and things in a flood, it's such a 2020 image. And I'm glad that you survived that. And it's incredible that your leadership team is intact uh, from that. I don't know how many major health system leadership teams can say the same. Let's pick that part of you guys all having gone through this together. Now we're in 2023, where as CEO Mike Slabowski of Trinity Health talks about all these headwinds, you know, I saw Paul Keckley use the same phrasing of just unending challenges. How has that helped you guys being through COVID together to face some of these other challenges, which frankly feel as much of an existential threat as COVID did? I think within our organization, we all knew each other well. We'd worked together a long time in different ways. We said we had common goals and strategies. It was different though during COVID. I mean, we all had the same goals, the same concerns, the same inhibitions. We became more of a team. And so therefore, our willingness to be candid with each other, our willingness to debate, our willingness to try to come to a consensus is better today than it ever was. And these challenges keep going. I mean, the challenge we went through at our state house again this year, it was still the most difficult thing that we've done. And we know it's not over. Well, I heard about the challenges in the Indiana State House from Nebraska. So I know when you hear about other state news, you know that there's something big going on there. And what is the latest with that? Are you guys through session now and coming out of that? Yeah, we're through session. Our legislature is not full-time. You know, it's it's a part-time legislature every year. That has closed out. As I've said to other people, it's like we go play nine-digit poker. I don't know any other way to say it. And it's something that I would never have ever expected that that's what we would be doing. What could have been really bad to us didn't happen. We did get some penalties that will be assessed in 2025. So we got a little bit of time to adjust for that. We've already started making changes within our organization. Nobody wants to change. We have leaders that were here two months ago are not here now. We're going through and restructuring all kinds of things to prepare for this. And that's just to uh, be able to address what's going to happen here in 18 months or so. But we also know that there's larger, more concerning headwinds out there. And Ryan, my whole point is that we're not looking for a fight, but we have a mission. 
And what we do is related to our mission, vision, values. I know some people believe those are just words on a wall. I don't believe that. And so we've got to be here for our community, find a way to provide those services, irregardless if people believe that, that we should be providing those services or not. Well, and I've had the benefit of being on site and seeing you guys living and breathing those values. I know a lot of listeners haven't, but I've been privy to that. And, and one thing that I think you're alluding to in terms of the mission is really who's on the other end of that mission, which is the patient you serve and the many, many patients that you serve in your area. And so I want to focus on that. You and I have talked before about what is an experience. And I've made this point that in healthcare, we love to just take words when they're new and shiny and just use them and use them and use them and almost bury them, right? We've kind of done to quality, to safety, to these other words. We just capture them and kill them. And so I don't know if that's happened to experience yet, but I think when you ask someone in healthcare what an experience is, if you ask 10 people, you might get 10 very different answers. And so I'm really curious with you and some of the, the work that you've done. In your mind, what is an experience? To me, it's something that I did or so I did with someone, and I want to share that with everyone. And obviously, we want those to be good. They're not all good. But still, good or bad, people want to share. They want to talk about what occurred, especially if there's a positive outcome or that they felt like the people knew them. And with all the data we have and the ways in which we get information back and forth, we have the ability to know people better than we ever have. But that experience piece of it, we have to engage our entire workforce and focus on experience. So you could go bottom top, whether it's leadership or physicians or APPs or nurses or anybody else, everybody's involved in this experience. And as I talk to people about it, it's no different than what we want when we go anywhere. We're asking for the same thing for our patients and their families as they come to or they interact with our organization. I think some of the really important points of that answer. First of all, the way you described the experience is you didn't use the word healthcare. And I think that's really important because I think we couch healthcare experiences as something separate from other experiences we have. And I think your view and all that you clarify is generally, you know, you're providing these experiences just as people have other experiences in every facet of life that they'll live. Yes. And frankly, I think that if, if I knew another sector, they probably have the same thing too. You know, all I really know is healthcare. And the whole point is you can't create a different, oh, this is more difficult. This is surgery or this is somebody who's, I mean, you can come up with all these excuses. We have to meet people where they are. We have to know them. We have to use the information to make sure that they know that we know them. And people have preferences and what they like, and we are not where I want to be. And you and I have talked about this as well, Ryan. I mean, we ought to be able to, to make appointments no different than you can on your phone for any other service. Now, a lot of people would say, there's all these reasons why you can't do that. And I would say, they're not legitimate. We got to get past that. I don't edict things. I mean, this is a team concept and we will continue to advance what we do. And if you took what we do now and look back five years, most of it we didn't do. Matter of fact, it wasn't that long ago the heck We'd send our data in, and heck, it was months later before it came back, and what a waste of time and money. The quarterly review of the previous quarter's data, 
What's interesting about experience is you came about as president and CEO of Community Health Network just as CAPS public reporting was really out there. It'd been collected for a couple of years, but it was building into this big, everyone remembers 08 for two reasons. One, the financial collapse and other public reporting of CAPS. And we thought, okay, we've got data. Everybody's got data. And not only that, it's public. So consumers can go out and see that data, pair and shop and all these things. We talked about those things 15 years ago. And to your point about scheduling, there's still a struggle now. How have you as CEO gone through that journey of caps from then to now? Because I think some CEOs had high hopes that were dashed. I think other CEOs were running away from some of those numbers, to be honest with you, and maybe still are. What was your personal take on that and what's gotten you to 2023? Probably the biggest change is that instead of having the information we submitted and wait for it to come back, we have to go find our own system. We have to find ways in which we engage with the patient. So we have, if you're a patient or organization going through, I could see where somebody would get upset at some point that they're being asked too many times to evaluate what we're doing. Okay. They have a choice not to. I think it's important that we understand their journey and what's happening in their journey. I get a report weekly of people who have concerns with any issue in the organization. And we have a, a really detailed report of how we get engaged, how we solve something, how we how do we cure something for somebody else. That's information that I need to be involved in. Okay. I can't help them healthcare-wise. I can get them with the right person. We can put them with the right team. But the experience, I have to be engaged fully in the experience. Because that experience is in fact in my opinion, our brand. Well, and I think what's powerful there, and I'll, I'll go back to what you said originally when you talked about experience, is that it's something you share. And we've had discussions about how you don't completely own your brand. In fact, the patient and consumer, they can change your brand, they can build up your brand, they can tear it down. And so the fact that you include sharing the experience with others as part of the experience, I think is really important to draw a line to. A lot of patients will say part of the experience was talking to family while I was there. It was talking to my neighbors and giving them an update when I was home. It was all of those follow-up communication pieces, of which many of those pieces are very public. We're posting things on Facebook. We're putting videos on YouTube. We're putting things on Instagram. So tell me about that part of the data. Because you know, there's the part that's required. There's the paper surveys going out. We administer plenty of those. But there's all these other pieces of communication of consumers and patients talking about their experience. Have you been able to get a handle on that over the years? I think we've progressed. I mean, what comes to my mind, Ryan, is the fact that we now go through a training with all of our providers, and we've been doing this for years, and looking at each other, not looking away, not being on the computer, finding ways, other ways to get the data in, in there. But to really have this be something that's personal between the physician and the patient or the provider and the patient. So that there is a listening. I mean, and there's an engagement and there's an understanding. It can't just be, you know, I'm filling, I got to complete this thing in this record. And frankly, I don't like doing it. And I don't like computers and all these other things. It's difficult. It, it is. And so that's why we have to support our team to make sure that they understand what we're trying to do and train them and guide them and then have their peers also train them and say, I learned this, and this is an easy button, and here's how I try to make sure that I've got somebody else uh, doing this work, and we all know we've got that AI 
piece of it on the horizon here that we may actually utilize as well. But that's a piece of it. And so that's it in person. But the other thing is that when do you want to come see us? And let's make sure that we find a way for you to come see us. And if the person you want to see in the available, here's a couple other people that are available. If this has got to be a two-way dialogue. And I think for a long time, healthcare has been one way and not even using the same language. I completely agree with you. And on that two-way street, we sometimes describe when that patient sits down with a physician, for example, as a battle of preferences because you have the patient's preferences on their side. And a lot of that is shaped not by healthcare, but by every other experience I have, going out to a meal, booking a hotel stay. And now I'm in front of a physician, which I don't take for granted as a patient, but I want certain things to go a certain way. And to your point, you sort of unveiled, those physicians have preferences too. They've got a day to get about. They've got a lot of patients to see. They've got a way that's worked. And so for them, there's a struggle there as well. You use a lot of common sense, but in that position of patient to physician, that bond that we try to build, it seems like it's under assault. You have patients saying, I'm waiting way too long to get into my doctor. You have doctors saying, I'm, be I'm seeing way too many patients. I can't be personal with them, be face-to-face -face the way I want. Where do you see that bond going maybe in 23 and beyond? The pressures are there. What's the future of the patient-physician bond? Well, first of all, at least I'll talk about Indiana, we'll never have enough physicians or APPs to meet this daily demand. So that's not a criticism. We just won't. We've done things to expand medical schools or residencies and all these other things, but there's not going to be a supply there. So it has to get back to, okay, what does a physician really need to do and what can other people do to help with that experience? Some of it's getting information in advance and you know what we're working with. Sometimes people think they need something and we're trying to get them in for a lengthy visit, but they really just want, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes to do something else. And many people, the video is fine. We have the luxury, my wife and I, that we, we both take care of our moms. So, and they have a lot of health care. And so we see it as a consumer and it's really helpful when you're dealing with all this, because not only are you trying to get a good experience, you're trying to explain it to the person, to the patient who doesn't understand a lot about what's going on. And to me, that's a blessing that we, that I have trying to run an organization is I have a reason to traverse the organization as we try to help our family members. One of the things I always appreciate talking to you, Brian, and I think our listeners do at this point is you're very involved in the details of the consumer and patient experience. Not from the point of view of operationally, you know, you're telling people what to do, but you're just very in tune with it, which, you know, this is not a criticism I'm trying to level broadly, but I think sometimes CEOs are not very in tune with the actual details of the consumer and patient experience. And as you know, there's some amazing things that come out of those details. One of the things that you're talking about is some people are returning to visits where their physician, not because they have a necessary medical need because they just haven't been in front of their physician for years. And we've seen about the epidemic of loneliness, uh, especially among Americans 65 plus. So it's so interesting to think about some of those things that are changing. You also talked about supply, and that's not just of physicians, it's all of workforce. So let's go to workforce while I have you. You know, this has been a massive challenge. We've suffered through the great resignation, which felt like another wave of the pandemic. How has that affected you at Community Health Network? And what do you see for workforce in the near term? 
some of this right gets back to what I believe my role is when I say I'm trying to coach a team. When I literally cannot produce revenue, I can't see patients. I better find some other way to to do my job. So we have new employee orientation every Monday morning, 52 weeks a year. Most weeks we have somewhere between 50 and 60 people. Today was an exception, largest group I've ever seen, 136. I think it's important for me to go connect with everybody in that room and tell them who we are, what we are, you know, how we work, what our mission is. And the other thing they get, they get my direct contact. So I want to make sure that they have access, that they bring ideas, they see concerns, whatever it is that we have access. We also have provider for physicians, APPs, new orientation. Those, those are monthly as opposed to weekly. Same thing. Go to there. Make sure that people know who you are. Always tell them, you see me walking through Walmart, stop me, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I mean, we're just people trying to serve other people. And the better we know and trust each other and we have these communications, the better we're going to get at it. So people feel comfortable being candid. And a lot, a lot of the conversations I have are positive. Some are negative. I'm always amazed. I'm always appreciative of the fact that somebody's got something difficult to say or they don't like, and they call me or say, hey, I want to meet with you or whatever. I think that's important because people, back to your employer question, they want to feel wanted. They want to belong. They want to have coworkers. They want to be respected. To me, that's the given. And with all the technology we have and the way to communicate, we should be able to do that. That makes a ton of sense in terms of workforce. And I think what's popping into my mind, Brian, is you're making yourself really accessible. That also doesn't always happen at the C-suite level, and it gets tougher the larger organization you are. But there's also patients who want access as well. So, you know, I, I like the way you phrased it earlier saying, when do you want to come see us? This sort of opening of that two-way street. And you know that there's patients who still, they've been to you, they know you, and they have difficulty taking those first steps on a healthcare journey. One thing you've done in particular is how may we help you? This idea on the website of how may we help you as sort of an opening line to get that journey started. Tell me more about that. We're just trying to get people to describe with their words, with their perspective, what are they looking for? Somebody could say, I need to see a doctor for this reason. That may not be true. That might be what they think because that's what they've done in the past. But if you tell us, we may be able to take care of what you want without you ever spending any time or spending any money. It's just trying to have an open dialogue that is not necessarily medical. I was down in one of our hospitals walking around a few weeks ago, and I'm in the emergency room. While I'm there talking to the team, there was probably, I'm going to say a dozen people walk in. Of those dozen, about 50% of them, they weren't there for healthcare. They were looking, where to kind of get on a bus? How do I find this place I'm looking for? Okay, those types of questions had nothing to do with healthcare. And I sat there, I walked away and proudly says, people must trust us. Walk in an emergency room, that's not easy to do. And they're walking in because they believe that there's somebody in there that's going to tell them the truth and direct them. I said, wow, that has nothing to do with healthcare, nothing to do with patient volume, but we need to be a trusted voice in the communities we serve. Well, and trust is so critically important right now. You see a lot of reports about trust going down in every facet of life, not even healthcare specific. And we know that things are a little strange coming out of the pandemic. 
The other thing I think about when I hear trust, Brian, is all the new entrants that we talk about all the time, the Amazons, the CVSs that are coming in specifically in primary care. They have brands. They want to build trust. And for us, I think trust can be our guard, our moat, if you will, that we drive around our patient population now. Is that how you see trust? And also, what are some ways in which you think about building those guardrails around what you have as a patient population versus these new entrants coming in? Well, I think it's important that we constantly are available for communications back to where we were. So it's not just when I made an appointment. It's not because I had a bad experience. If I have questions about anything, I've got a place I can call. So that's one. Two, if I've got a complaint, this isn't going to be something that they have a complaint and they're going to call and six months later we get back with them. They're going to hear for us, I would say, at least within 48 hours that they've been heard. We're trying to address that. And I think a lot of times when people call me and I call them back, they're stunned that I call them. I'm not calling to have a a debate. I'm calling to understand what they're looking for and why. And I think that when they know that somebody's listening, and if I just mean, I mean, this isn't about Ryan, this is about our culture. Of course. When they have people that, that are openly engaging with them, they do develop this trust. And I'm not saying that there aren't other people out there trying to disrupt healthcare, but I still think at the core of where we are, this is people serving people. And I think that that's what we've got to have at the forefront of what this is all about. And we've got to be willing to be vulnerable in order to have those conversations with people. It's so interesting too, because one of the things we've observed is a lot of those service recovery protocols, like a lot of our other protocols sort of went out the window during those waves of COVID. We're revisiting that. We actually asked a series of questions nationally, and you know our market insights instrument that we use to talk to consumers across the country. We asked a series of questions about service recovery pre-COVID, and we're revisiting those now because our feeling is, what's going on with service recovery in 2023? And let me fold that into a larger part of this that I want to ask you about, and that is brand. And we know that when things are rocking and rolling and experiences are good, then you know people are going to feel positively about your brand. But when something does go wrong or just doesn't meet someone's expectation, then there's an opportunity there to recover, to build the brand, maybe to make it stronger than it was before. How is your feeling about that in 2023? Because our brand, like us, is emerging from COVID, where it was very closely associated with the pandemic. So when you think about Community Health Network as a brand in 23 and beyond, what's the status of that brand right now? I don't think we can get stuck in semen on this thing because it changes daily. I mean, we have got to be accessible. We have got to be able to communicate. We have got to be able to find ways to meet the demands of whatever this the consumer wants or the employer wants or whoever the insurance company wants. I don't think we can put things in place and say, okay, we have this, we're going to move on to something else. That's where I get back to this whole experience. I look at experience and I'm being a bit repetitive here, but it's, we call everybody in an organization a caregiver. So we have a caregiver experience. I, I'm a caregiver, as I always say, I'll never touch a patient, but I have a responsibility. Other people have direct caregivers, others don't, but whoever you are, you know, you have a, a responsibility there. And then we've got this experience with our patients and their families, and we have got to have this fluid conversation. It's so easy to take data and come to conclusions. 
Okay, and that conclusion may be 75% right, but we're talking the 25% that it's not right, and we still have got to have an engagement lesson with that. I think that's why it's imperative for us to be really involved in our communities. You know, that we're involved in things that have nothing to do with healthcare, but is being a part of the communities we serve. You know, and that that's some of the issues we get in debates with our legislature. Why are you involved in all these various things? You know, why don't you just wait for people to come to your hospital? We share a role very different than that. And so do patients and consumers, and not just in Indiana, but they say, why is my hospital in this little blue box that I only go to if something really wrong is happening? They want that two-way street because for them, it makes those first steps of a care journey easier when there's a relationship up front and it's not just based on an episode. So I think you're on the right track. You know, when you mentioned the word community, which is in the name of your organization, you guys also view all of those caregivers, direct or indirect, as needing access to care. And you've got something called My Care Community. Tell me more about that. Well, I wish I could tell you that we thought of this long before now. I'm sure others have, but it's like what, you know, somebody comes up with an idea and you're like, that's really good. <laughs> Let's do that. I mean, one of the programs we've rolled out over the last several months has been on Monday mornings when we talk to our, our new employees or new caregivers, we tell them you as a caregiver community should have access to care. So therefore, if you and your family as part of our team, we will guarantee you access to providers to address your healthcare. They may not take our insurance. They may have physicians outside of here. That's all fine. That's their choice. But if they need something, here's the way in which they contact us and we get them or their family care so that they feel they have preferential treatment for access to healthcare. Because one, that should be a benefit of our company. And two, you know, we want them to address their issues so that they can also help us serve the patients that come here. So it really is not an insurance program. It really is a, a benefit of being an employee here that we're going to help you get to be seen in your family if, in fact, you have a need for health care. There's such a great reflexive quality to that as well, that, you know, employees experience things in the way that patients do or that we take patient communication, good or bad. And we reach back out and we ingrain ourselves in the community. So it breaks down, honestly, some barriers that we put up that we say, we'll look at this population and that population. And we'll look at just this data and just that data. I mean, how often does data, you know, you look at employee data and patient data completely separately and never the two should meet. So if someone is listening, whether they're a CEO or they're a director or whatever level, and they say, I want to take this approach to my organization where we're sort of building these two-way streets, what's some advice that you would give them or some ideas that you've implemented at Community Health Network to help break down some of those walls that, frankly, I think we put up? I'll go back to how this came about. I mean, a lot of it was, you know, we have expectations. And when somebody needs access, they're going to get access. So we really never, I think that presumed it would be somebody outside of our organization. I'm not saying that's really what it was, but I think that's how it was defined. And so therefore we have people trying to meet the demands that we have and the expectations and promises, but yet the aha was, but we're not even doing that all the time or making that offer for our own employees or caregivers. And so that subtle difference was, wow, there's something here. And so the whole idea of marketing to our caregivers, especially 
those that are new to our organization, those have been here a long time, it just had a very positive eye-opening of something we should have been doing all along. Well, and the power of saying marketing to your caregivers is that you're including those internal folks as caregivers. And I think that's powerful because if we exclude our audience that's internal, that's part of us, we sort of go over their heads with messages or we go over their heads with important communication or we just, they just feel like they're being, you know, excluded from the process. I think that that shows up in the experience and, you know, they start to feel like they're the odd person out, if you will, over the patient. And so I think that that's such a, a great approach that you take with it. Do we have things to be hopeful about, Brian? And you talked about nine digit poker and we've talked about some of the challenges with workforce and new entrants. Do we have things to be hopeful about for these next few years of what we call the healthcare experience in this country? I guess I'm hopeful every day. I believe that we are embracing the changes in the world. We're embracing the improvements in science and, and how we treat various things. The more we have a system that allows that to come quick and adhere to us, the better off we are. I would not have hope if all of a sudden I thought, okay, we've learned all we can learn about medicine while we can do about health, and this is as good as it's going to get. That's not true. It continues to change, and we've got to be ready to change daily as well. But so much of it gets back to the what we're doing right here. We're on a video, but we're talking face-to-face. We got to do that. We have got to meet people where they are. This is all about relationships. This is all about trust. This is all about what can I do to help you? And I mean that sincerely. So there's many companies out there that do all kinds of things, but we have the benefit of being here 24-7 in our organizations, and we have the ability to connect with people and connect to understand who they are, that we know them. We've got to know them more and more, what they want to do, and we're here to help them hold their hand, whatever that is. And whether that's a healthcare issue or maybe some other social determinant, that we're here to do the whole thing. And as we go, as I said earlier, the battles of the legislature, that's my battle, okay? That's not everybody else's battle. And we've got to figure out how to make sure that we're a viable organization while we're going through all this. The way I think a lot of people think about that question of the future, they start thinking of a long arc of 18 months or three years or five years, some of the things we used to do before COVID. And I think you can feel incredible stress and incredible uncertainty. What's going to happen in five years, given what's happened in the last five. But I think for you, you almost commit to taking it day by day in the sense that you'll communicate with people every day. You'll make adjustments every day. It makes it so much more manageable to think about the future in this industry is what can we do today to get a little bit better to treat people in and of itself? That can be a pretty powerful way to do this strategically. Simply, that's what people want to know. Okay, I'm here. I have to work. I'm going to work here. What do you need from me today? What do you need from me tomorrow? For me to talk about strategic plans or three years, I mean, I'm just talking to myself. There's no, yeah. there's no sense in doing that. Let's get this into what we need to do right now. But you go back to the beginning. This experience is something that we have got to never lose track of. Oh, we got that. We got the experience that under control. No. So yeah, I'm an optimist. I think we can find solutions, but I think also the better retention we have of our leadership and our employees, you know, we're in a pretty good shape related to all that. 
numbers keep moving in the right direction, that's healthy to me. It sounds healthy to me too. And it gives me hope. A lot of what you've said, especially towards the end here, has given me a lot of hope for the future. And I think sometimes the little bit of the anxiety we feel, I think is sometimes how we frame it. And so hopefully this helps reframe this and taking it day by day and what you said about people serving people. Hopefully that grounds folks. Speaking of people serving people. So you'd mentioned just this morning, you were just coming out of a new orientation that you do every week, the new employee orientation. Let's pretend that one of those employees happened to pop into an elevator with you. They're on day one. And so what is a piece of advice that you would give to them? I'd start the conversation. I'm not going to look at my shoes. I'm not going to look at the ceiling. I'm not going to look like I'm really busy. Tell me about yourself. Here's a badge. Here's what I do. Where'd you come from? Why do you want to be in healthcare? Tell me about your family. Anything I can say, why, why do you do what you do? What, what brings you joy? People love talking about themselves, their family, especially, you know, their kids or grandkids. I mean, being a grandpa now, yeah, that's number one. But I think it's taking that opportunity. I and mean, one of the things that I do, and I'm not trying to say I've got anything brilliant, but I visit patients in hospitals. Because I have no reason to be in a hospital. I can't do anything, but I can, I can go visit people. So I visit people almost daily. Because somebody's called me and said, hey, my mom's in here, or my sister's or whatever, and my brother. And I make sure that when I do that, I park as far, I know our facilities, I park as far as I possibly can. That means I might walk through so many different employees on the way to my destination. And it gives me a chance to say hi and talk to them and introduce myself. It's my responsibility to reach out to them. I think for me to think that people are going to do that to me, as you know, I'm not very big, so... So I'm not very intimidating, but just by title. So I think it's important to reach out to make sure that people understand that we're all the same. We just have different roles. And I think that person across from you probably wouldn't expect just a nice conversation in a personal personal thing. They might see your badge and say, oh, it's the CEO. They're going to ask me something or I got to think of something really clever to say. And so I love your advice in that sense. And I think a lot of leaders could take that exact advice and say, just talk to them as a person. And I think they will be impressed by that. And you'll be impressed by what you hear. That's great advice. Well, and you'll also find confidants who will call you when something's going on. Yes. You know? Yes. I mean, so I mean, true. I'm not looking for tattletales, if you will. But I think sometimes people say, hey, we had a conversation. You might want to think about this or here's what I'm hearing. Yeah. And you just build that transparency and communication. I love that. This was a fantastic conversation centering on experience, but not just patient experience, the entire experience, all caregivers at Community Health Network, everything that you do in your experience as a leader and in our experience as Americans. So I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Ryan, great to see you. Thanks for making it easy on me. We will conclude for today. This was another episode of the Patient No Longer podcast. Thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you next time. And that's the show. Thank you for joining us today as we exchange ideas, share struggles, and celebrate triumphs. Come back next month as we continue our journey through the magical and maddening world of healthcare. Never miss a show. Subscribe at nrchealth.com slash patient no longer or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Ryan Donahue, and you've been listening to Patient No Longer, a presentation of NRC Health, the founders and lead architects of human understanding in healthcare. Until next time.